Well, it's time to wrap it up. It's, it's time to finish up talking about we are church. So we've talked about teaching and serving and, and community and, and all these things that are crucial parts of being part of the, the, the larger local church body, right? How, how we as like a part of the church can connect with the rest of the church. And so tonight, we're going to talk about uh, what I like to think of as kind of like the tape around the whole box, the glue that holds it together, right? That type of analogy. But I want to preface it with, with something honestly. Two weeks ago, I, I talked in front of you guys for the first time, and I felt like it went great, like I had some good feedback, I had a great time, it was a blast, great, wonderful. And so it probably gave you a decent first impression of me. You were like, oh, that was a nice talk. Community's cool. Isaac wants us all to be friends. That's good. Tonight's not going to do that. Uh, I'm honestly going to challenge you directly, honestly, and pretty intensely tonight. And I want you to know that I do that not because I want to be accusatory or because uh, I know that you're doing the wrong thing. It's because... Tonight we're talking about unity, and typically we're generally not good at this. And if I'm being honest with you, as young adults, we sometimes are a little extra not good at this. And so I think that it's important that we address the problems of what blocks us from seeking unity. I mean, we're humans, we sin, right? Nobody's ever going to get this perfect. And so we need to address what we're doing wrong so that we can make efforts to change those things and do it right. Now, when we think of the word unity, there are a lot of different pictures that maybe come to mind or, or things that we think about. I told you two weeks ago that I'm pretty into video games and I'm nerdy, so one of the first wrong images of unity that comes to mind is a concept called a hive mind. Have you guys ever heard of this idea of a hive mind before? So a hive mind essentially means that individuals don't think for themselves. I think of this old video game that came out literally the same year I was born called StarCraft, okay? Now, if you've never heard of StarCraft, it's like it's a strategy game and you make armies and they fight each other. That's the basic gist of it. But there's one alien race in this game called the Zerg. I actually have a picture of what the Zerg looks like. And you'll see that they're very primal. They're very primitive. They look rather insect-like and, and big sharp fangs and like claws and they're ugly and they're mean and they're angry, right? And the Zerg are part of a hive mind. This means that every individual alien, like the fighters and the workers, they don't think for themselves. They, they don't even speak. They just make like roars and clicks and things like that. And so what happens is there's like the big alien brain in the sky that tells all the Zerg what to do, and they all collectively follow orders. No individual thinks from themselves. So they're very rigid, they're very uniform, and very uh, just kind of falling in line. And so the first thing that I want us to understand is that unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. We will see as we dig into our passages and, and the scripture and whatnot tonight that the, the picture of the church is one of diversity. 
is one of many different people, of different interests, of different colors, of different faces, of different, all, all kinds of differences. Diversity, rich, deep, true diversity. And this means that the church is not filled with people who all look and think exactly the same. And so unity is not uniformity. Now, there are two areas or two specifics of this diversity that I want to highlight. And the first is that God wants a diverse church of diverse people. And the second is that this diverse people is united by the gospel and its essential orthodoxy. And so the first point, God wants a diverse church of diverse people. Like I already said, everybody and anybody. But then the second point, uh, united by the gospel and its essential orthodoxy. So orthodoxy is essentially just a word that means true. And so essential orthodoxy, we're talking about the church is united by the most important truth, the essential truth. Because as we discover later on that I'm going to talk about, there are things biblically that are essential to the unity of church and things that are non-essential. And we'll dig into that. So let's go ahead and look at a passage. There, there are tons of Bible verses and biblical passage on unity. But my personal favorite happens to come from Ephesians. And so let's look at that. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Buckle in, it's a big old scripture. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, that's a lot, right? That's a lot of scripture. But the big thing right at the front is there's a lot of historical context to this passage. I mean, he opens about talking Jews and Gentiles and circumcised and uncircumcised. Man, I love preaching on this passage. And so there's just this like, what, what, what is he talking about? And so if you know anything about the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says is that to know God, you have to be a Jew. 
You must be Jewish. And, and Gentiles, Gentiles just means it not a Jew, anyone who's not a Jew. Gentiles could come to know God, could know God, but they had to become a Jew. They had to become circumcised, right? That's a traditional Jewish practice of the Old Testament to show that you are a Jew. And so there is a cultural conformity that has to happen in order to be close to God, according to the Old Testament. You have to change your cultural identity, not just your worship, not just the God you declare as yours, but the way you culturally live your life. And so before the New Testament, before Christ, knowing God was more than just praying and having a relationship, you also had to shift the way you live culturally. Now, of course, back in those days, culture and religious beliefs were kind of like married together. Uh, nowadays, that's not exactly the case. There is still clearly heavy religious influence in a lot of culture, but it, it's not quite the same. But one of the things that we get from the New Testament, one of the things we get here from what Paul is telling us in this letter to Ephesus is that now many cultures come together as the church. There is no one and only culture to conform to to be a part of the, the church. That means that everybody and anybody is welcome in God's church. It doesn't matter what you look like, who you are, where you come from, your socioeconomic background, none of that matters. You are welcome and have an opportunity to know Jesus and be a part of the church, no matter who you are. And so this brings up this discussion about identity. So if, if Jesus says all cultures are welcome, what is my identity? There's so much diversity in the church. Who am I? And the important thing to know is that your identity lies with Christ first. As a Christian, first and foremost, you are defined by the way that Christ values you, by his salvation for you, his love for you. You are a child of God, first and foremost. But the beauty of this passage and what Paul is telling us is that that also means that whatever your cultural identity is in addition to that does not have to go away. You don't stop being who you are. Your upbringing does not have to go away. Your cultural identity does not have to go away. You don't stop being the race you are or the ethnicity you are and be a Christian instead. You are still all those cultural identities, racial identities, ethnic identities, and a Christian most of all. And so this brings up an important point that I want to talk about. Because in this verse, sometimes we can read it and hear verses where it says things like one, uh, the two became one, hostility was removed, and we can think things like, oh, there is no culture anymore. There is no race anymore. There is no ethnicity anymore. God has made two one, so I don't see color. But I want to make something very, very clear to you right now, that that is not biblical. That is incorrect. There's a verse in Revelations, Revelation 7, 9 through 10. It says this, 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Frankly, to say something like, I don't see color, is to ignore entirely the fact that God created people of different races and colors. If he did that, in what purpose would it serve then to tell us to ignore that he created that? It's incredibly contradictory to himself. God doesn't make mistakes. He wouldn't say to us, oh no, that's wrong, ignore that that happened. Because then that would imply that God didn't mean to do that or that he shouldn't have done that. And God doesn't make mistakes. And to say something like, I don't see color, is not biblical. And that is to then reinforce that everybody, no matter who you are, is welcome in the church. And it applies in a multitude of ways, right? We talked about, you know, diversity means so many things. And so there is no one who is excluded from the church. And this brings up a term that I want to try to help make it a little more clear. Have you guys ever heard of the term gatekeeping? I feel like you guys might be a little more familiar with that. I feel like that's a relatively young person word. If you've ever been on Reddit before, you have definitely know this word. Gatekeeping essentially means that you are guarding something. Typically, people use it when they're talking about like a fan base, right? If you're a really big fan of like a, a certain band, right, then you might say, well, only certain people should listen to this band because, you know, they have a certain vibe or a certain style. What you are doing is saying certain people only belong to like this fan base because they attract a certain demographic and so you don't really fit that demographic so you should stay away from this. And sometimes and frequently we do this with church. We think that church has a certain look, has a certain thought process, has a certain political party that needs to be attached to it. And so then we get this idea that we know who belongs in church And there are people out there that don't. And I want you to know that that's not true. That's not true. There is no one who doesn't belong at church. Do not gatekeep the church. And so we now understand, right, okay, anybody's allowed in church. Everybody's allowed in church. It's biblical. That's what it says. And so then the question is, with such great diversity, with so many different people that that think or maybe believe so many different uh, things that are not essential to the gospel, how do we really come together then? Uh, Remember, I said there's no political party that's associated with the church. So that means Democrats and Republicans get to live together in the church. That sounds impossible. How do we do that? Well, thankfully, it does happen here at Redemption Chapel. Uh, And what unites us all, despite such deep diversity and despite our differences, is the power of the gospel and biblical truth. The power of the gospel and biblical truth. Uh, Remember, we talked about the gospel and essential orthodoxies. So let's dig into that. The gospel is far more powerful than any other force of man. It's more powerful than racism, than socioeconomic turmoil, than classism, than politics. There is nothing the gospel can't break through to bring people together, especially in the environment of the church. 
It's the most powerful thing, and it's the most important thing. Biblical truth is necessary. So let me give you this analogy, right? We're, we're trying to be unified. There's great diversity, and we're trying to all follow Christ. So how do we do that? Well, we have to have the right compass. So a compass, as you see in this illustration, if you've ever, like you've seen a real compass, right? One that actually points north based on the magnetic field. You know that when you hold that compass, if you turn your body to the side, that compass will still point north because it follows a magnetic field. So if my needle is pointing this way and I turn my body, it doesn't matter where my body faces, that needle will continue to point north because it is pulled by the magnetic field. We, as a church, need to be pulled to God, pulled to the gospel, pulled to the biblical word like a compass is pulled towards north via the magnetic field. No matter who's around us, no matter what's going on, we should be so focused on the gospel, on the Bible, on the truth of what the Bible says. That is your north. That is your moral compass. The Bible is the objective, end-all, be-all, bottom-of-the-line, foundation truth. Its very essence is unchallengeable, 100% truth. Now, The only problem that arises with that is if you don't believe that the Bible is true or real. And that's a whole different conversation that I do not have another 20-minute sermon timer for to get into right now. But if you do have questions about the validity of the Bible as a real, honest, and true document, uh, please be, be free to ask Alex or I questions about that. Uh, we did take a master's degree college class in it, so I hope we know at least one or two things. We are not perfect, though, all right? We are not perfect. But so the Bible is truth, bottom of the line, foundational. I don't care what the internet says. I don't care what your mom says, your boyfriend or girlfriend, wife, fiance, friends. It doesn't matter. The Bible is the truth, no matter what anyone else says. And that has to be our north. That has to be where we are going, is wherever the Bible tells us. Whatever it says, that's what I want to do. Now, there are three levels to this because then the problem becomes is we become really convicted to, okay, I believe the Bible says this and so it's true. But then we can be very, very nitpicky with certain things. Remember, I said essential orthodoxy because there are theological opinions that are not essential orthodoxy. And so let me break it down into three categories for you. Uh, Pastor Rick has used these categories frequently, actually, so you may have heard them before. But the first one is convictions. Convictions means things you are convicted of that they are true. The Holy Spirit has gripped your soul, and you know that they're true. Here's the example. Jesus died on the cross. He rose on the third day. He beat sin and death. We have a restored relationship with him, and we can live with him in eternity on the new heaven and new earth. That is essential orthodoxy conviction. Essentially, everything else falls under the other two categories. And the next one is persuasions. These are things that you personally believe to be true based on the evidence that you have and careful study. Let me give you a personal example for me. 
I am personally of the persuasion that sign gifts, such as healing or speaking in tongues, are no longer used by God today for his ministry and his work. Based on the evidence I have seen, I would call myself what is a cessationalist. I believe those things have ceased. Now, is that essential conviction and orthodoxy? Absolutely not. There are people who fully believe in those things, who practice those things, who are absolutely wonderful Christians. I grew up going to a church that practiced things like that, and I absolutely don't doubt any of the faiths of any of those people. Do we disagree about a theological issue? Sure. That doesn't exclude them from the church. That doesn't exclude me from the church. We just happen to disagree. And of course, the final category is opinions. We all have opinions. Uh, one thing that I personally think really falls into opinions, some people might argue it's in persuasions for them, uh, but it's eschatology, which is essentially studying of the end times. People are premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. They think they have this idea of when God might come back. The Bible says nobody knows, so I'm putting that one under opinions, all right, because it doesn't matter what you think, so... There are three categories of our biblical thought. And in the top category is one thing, and that is the gospel. The good news of how Jesus saved us from our sins. Now, you may have noticed there's a lot less jokes in my talk tonight. It's a lot less lighthearted. Why? Why am I so serious about this? And honestly, guys, it's because I didn't get this. When I first came to Redemption Chapel, I did not get this. I believed that only certain people were a part of the church. I believed the church was of a certain political party. I had strong belief that that the church was made up of a certain group of people and a lot of other people weren't going to get it and weren't going to be there. And so I had a very hard heart to what the church should look like. And then I came to Redemption Chapel and I went, whoa, I think I might be wrong. And then I read my Bible and went, yeah, I am wrong. And I had to change. I had to look at myself and say, God, I'm wrong. Help me to soften my heart, to love others, to be more like you and change the way I think the way I believe the church should look. And so now I'm so, so incredibly passionate about this because I was wrong, but God changed me. And so we're all wrong. I mean, I'm still not, like, I'm a sinner. So, like, you know, just because, like, I'm changed doesn't mean I figured it out. And so we're all actively learning how to open and look at the church in new ways and accept people into it and help them know Jesus. And so we're all learning, we're all going through it. And so there are two things specifically that I want you to kind of take away from this. The first one is that we all need to love and accept a diverse church family. And this one is pretty easy and straightforward. Essentially, what that means is when you see people on a Sunday, when you see people come to next on Tuesday that look different than you, think different than you, have something different to say, maybe you have contradicting ideas or opinions, that doesn't disclude them from the church. Is disclude a word? I don't know. You know, they don't have to go, right? Like, we can all come and find common ground in the unity of the gospel, Because that's what is most important. 
But then the second thing is that we must use the Bible as our objective guide, as our baseline for truth. So here's a good picture of what that looks like. If you're unsure of what the Bible says about an issue, look it up. And don't look it up and study it with the intention of proving yourself right. Look it up with the intention of an entirely neutral point of view and going, it doesn't matter what I think or what anyone else says. Whatever the Bible tells me is the truth. That's what I believe. And it doesn't just happen like that in an instant. But the more you do that, the more you open your heart and say, God, please change the way I think, the way I live, define for me what is sin, what is not sin, that's what brings us together as the church. Because then we're all pursuing a deep, close, honest, real, life-changing relationship with Jesus And then we're all pointing the same direction and we look to our left and our right and realize there are a bunch of people around me who are all also running towards Jesus at the same time. And then we're all running the same direction together. And we see someone fall and we pick them up and we keep running towards Jesus together. And having him and his word as our north is what keeps us running together together. And so I hope that we have opportunities to do that. Now, one of the discussion questions tonight is going to talk about what you might need to change. What you might need to change, maybe you have something in your heart that you've been holding and you say, you know what, I think the Bible might say something different about this, but I believe something different. What is in your heart? How do you need to come before God and say, I think I might be wrong, help me. I want you to think about that. So I'm going to pray for us and then Alex will come dismiss into small groups. But I want you to take some time, meditate over that, let it marinate in your mind. How is God working in you right now to help bring more unity and make you more welcoming to the church as a large group? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you for who you are. You sent your son to die for us, and that brings this incredible and wonderful group together. People who maybe might not have ever met and and have all kinds of different beliefs and interests and, and things they love and they think differently, but you bring us all together. And it's you who creates this cool and awesome and incredible community of different people. And it's all because of your incredible transforming work and power. And God, I just am so thankful to even consider myself a part of that. Thank you. I pray that you would give us soft hearts that we would be able to look inwardly and see how you're moving in us and ask God, what would you have me do next? What am I doing wrong? Where am I not connecting with you? Where am I not listening to you in my life? Would you reveal that to us now and help us to be honest with ourselves so that we can make efforts to look more like you and that we may bring more to know you by embracing who you are and the unity that is your church. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.